Hello, podcast listeners. This is Charles Chandler. We're up to episode number 41 in our podcast series this week. But with the election and everything, um, we're dipping back into the archives once again to present an episode on winery management. This was originally broadcast as episode number eight back in March of 2016. Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. This is episode 8 of the podcast. In this episode, we continue our series on small business. And the subject of today's episode is, What Does It Take to Manage a Winery? I'll be visiting the Rancho Ponte Winery near Fredericksburg, Texas, where I interview Rachel Ponte, who, along with her husband, Roberto, owns and manages the winery. So I took my microphones along with me. There'll be a little bit of background noise, unfortunately, but um, I think the conversation is very interesting, and uh, you should be able to, to hear everything pretty well. So I now join Rachel at the vineyard. You know, we farm some acreage here, but obviously... You know. yeah, tell me about your vineyards out here. Uh, so we've got Merlot and um, Malbec in the back here. And then we have the Movedra up to the front. So if you want to come over here, I can show you. So they've already pruned this vineyard, um, or at least pruned part of it. Like, you can see part of it hasn't been pruned and part of it has been pruned. So these will pop here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So in the winter, they kind of way back to stimulate growth. But this part of our vineyard here has been really struggling. And it's probably a combination of, you know, poor soil. Um, uh, it doesn't get as much windbreak as the back vineyard from this big, large building. And so the front is not as hardy or healthy. Um, so the, the guys that tend the vineyard, we you know, we hire mm-hmm. somebody to come in and do it. Um, and Roberta was doing it probably the first three years just to try to get it mm-hmm. going. And um, yeah. and eventually they so will. So when you trim it back, that's for the growth of the roots? Well, what it does is it just simulates to, you know, put out more of a canopy. Yeah. So the, ne- the roots... The next year? Huh? The next year or... No, I mean, we should probably have over, a crop Over this the year. winter, okay. Yeah, yeah, over the winter. So we should probably have a crop this year. Um, but this vineyard's four or five takes, years. Old. Takes a few years, right? Four or five years? Um, last year, you know, we just didn't get a very good crop, and so we didn't take anything from this vineyard. But I think this year they're expecting, you know, something better than mm-hmm. what they got last year. So in the meantime, so. you were buying from elsewhere. You're we always buy from elsewhere, and we'll sure. continue doing that because sure. this doesn't support the winery this amount right, of acreage right. here. It provides. Yeah. Uh, Kind of a scenic vista. Of, of, well, a scenic yeah. vista and some fruit, and this yeah. is kind of our experimental uh, vineyard to see what does well here and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, this yeah. is all Venifra. It's very highly subject to, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Pierce's disease, Not really. but that's pervasive throughout the southwest, and oh. it often infects vineyards here and kills them within is it a fungus a or whatever? It's a it's a glassy wing sharpshooter, which is the the vector for the bacteria that travels up and down the xylem of the plant. Mm-hmm. 
and so you know you get uh, you know you get uh, root compromise, and then uh, by the time you realize you have it, the whole thing is infected. So it's a bacterial disease. Yeah, that's uh, you know mm-hmm. the the vector is this fast-moving sharp sharp too, so they're always trying uh, to you know get it. That's the bug. That's the bug. That flies around. Yeah, that flies around. So, and they have it here a lot. They even mm-hmm. have a, a you know an experimental vineyard out here at the airport, and you know mm-hmm. put money towards trying to figure out you know how like to how to control it. it. Yeah, right. how to control it. But, I mean, it's just, um, it's decimated vineyards here where people have set up vineyards and within five years they're gone and they have to replant mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not a really great place to take a lot of risk in growing a huge amount of fruit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of your fruit comes from um, what's so high, we, high plains or? Well, we place? do high plains. We do um, New Mexico. So this is our smart, small barrel room. But, um, right, so we have wine in the barrels. Yeah, we have wine in the barrels. So they just right. got finished what they call racking. Mm-hmm. And um, racking is where they take the wine out of the barrel and they, you know, siphon off all the sediment, you uh-huh. know, the sediment that goes on the bottom, and then they, re, you know, re put it back into the barrel. And then. Um, so how often do you have to do that? Well, you have to do that two or three times in a year. In a year, per year. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and typically, how long will it stay in the barrel? Uh, well, like for example, it depends on the wine and when the winemaker wants it released. But typically, our vintages are at least one year in the barrel, up to eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So, like last year, all of the Italian varietals that we put on our menu, which was the Sangiovese, the Ionico, and the um, uh, the Montepulciano, the two Montepulcianos, were, they were all ready to go. I think we bottled those in October um, for Wine Club. And then um, we didn't bottle the, the Merlot until January of this year. Right. So it's really whether the winemaker deems it ready or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Roberto is the winemaker. He's the winemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been in the same business for like ever since I've known fourth, fourth generation, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, so he and I met in college, and um, you know we were in an ag school in, in on the central coast of California, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and then really after we got married and started family, uh, we moved to Southern California to take over a 500 acre vineyard that his dad and, and some investors owned, and so um, you know he did that for uh, 10 years before they built the Ponte family estate winery down there. And then he ran that for a couple of years and then wanted to try to do something on his own. And, um, you know, we happened to come here to Hill Country and really mm-hmm. liked it and saw that they were putting in some wineries. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, yeah. came this way. So, um, as far as the processing equipment goes, mm-hmm. does that kind of determine how much output you can have for the year? In other words, the size of your tanks? Or what's, what's the limit? On how much wine well I mean the limit is like how many barrels can you harbor in here you know kind of a thing so um, you can see we have more room for more barrels definitely uh-huh. um, so but we are a small boutique winery so we do about 2,000 cases a year we sell direct to consumer we don't distribute to any place um, usually on larger scale wineries uh, you know when you're looking at you know like vast 
the tanks and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, they're not only holding wine in barrels, but they're holding wine in tanks, um, mm -hmm. you know, and bottling from there. So we do some of that. Obviously, we have white fermenters and um, red fermenters, but we really focus or have focused on, um, you know, excellency in red wines. Oh. So, um, you know, yeah, our white vintages are small and... Yeah. So yeah, it's um, it's what we do best, and um, even the people that are in the mix club, lots of times in the winter time we send them all reds too because that's what we do the best, and that's usually what's released. So um, anyway, that's sort okay. of where it's so, all made. Uh, let's say the annual schedule, mm -hmm. the the grapes are ready in like August, right, or something, something yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. here usually in Texas it's a little earlier. And then um, New Mexico is a little later, and then of course California is much later. Yeah. Okay. So um, you get the juice from somewhere else, right? No, off, you get off, the fruit. Off. You get actually the fruit. You actually get the fruit. You actually get the fruit. It's just been picked. Right. You bring it in. Yeah. Where does it go first? Well, first thing it does is it goes into like they've got all this this equipment pulled out here right now uh -huh. because they're you know working or producing on Friday. Yeah. But so this is kind of all kind of just put over here, but normally it would be in that room. Yeah. And so what you see is like you see the crusher December right there. Uh huh. And you can kind of see it. So they bring the whole fruit in and they crush into stem it in this. Right. So this just keeps running until you process yeah. everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you just have to keep going until. And so the way Roberto does it, because we're such a small winery, and he does the trucking himself because he wants to visit mm -hmm. the vineyard. He wants to mm -hmm. inspect the fruit before he accepts it. Right. Um, so he goes and gets the fruit. And then usually when he comes back, it's he usually does his timing where it's like on a Friday. And, you know, with Texas and the heat, you always have to be very careful about that. And then usually Friday morning, everybody's like all over the fruit until the fruit is processed. And, and you know, through this... And then, um, you know, put into these very large plastic bins. Um, and then we do all hand, uh, what they call pressing or punching down of the wine. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to do for like a whole week. And then these two things are basket presses. So we started with this size, which is, you know, right. the homie size. Yeah. And now we use this size. So it comes out of the... So it comes out of stimmer, there. Stimmer, what I they do is it. they put it in these. See how those plastic bins that are kind of propped up over there? Oh yeah. Yeah. So they put it in there. Okay. Right. And then it sits in this room, um, away from bugs and heat, for about a week. Which just is cool. Mass, uh, it's yeah. Cool in there. Sort yeah. Of it's cool and um, without any bugs. Mm -hmm. And then you're just what you're what you're doing is you're punching down the grape uh, must, if you will, mm -hmm. um, three times a day with mm -hmm. kind of like a, a tool and you just break through that cap and then you know as the uh you know it goes through this process uh -huh. then it's put into that press this one and it's pressed out yeah right and then it goes into the barrel and then it so the there. juice is coming out uh yeah, and it's, it's, in that, from that it's coming process. it's going to go into one of your other things in there i guess well it goes into like a, a plastic tote and into mm -hmm. 
you know, it, it, or right into a barrel. They just, mm-hmm. there's a hose that just kind of puts it right in there. Mm-hmm. And so um, the racking that they do three times a year is to get rid of the sediment or leaves or anything else that got into the wine. Yeah. And then you top it off and make sure that there's no um, oxygen. So, mm-hmm. but so this is the kind of thing, you know, it's, uh, you know, once you put the wine to bed, it's not really that difficult to, to obviously do, yeah. but um, you have to kind of watch it and, and, and you know, tend it every once in a while. Sure. So it's the perfect kind of uh, work for my husband because he's very able to get it all done and harvest is always very busy and everybody's very exhausted because it's a very physical process. But then once you put it to bed, then you kind of, you know, you can relax a little bit. Yeah, and then we head into winter where there's not as much farming or anything like that. So now we're in spring, obviously everything's starting to pop. Sure. And we're, you know, back to the outside work again. So, right. um, so how many, let's say, shipments of grapes do you get in? He uh, did, let's see, he did four or five runs of about, I think the max he could bring in was like five tons, something like that. Five tons, yeah. So, That's like one truck. Yeah, like one full truck. One big yeah. semi. Yeah. Well, not quite a semi, but well. yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I think he did... He went there five times last year. He, he is four or five of them. To his suppliers, wherever yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah, and he's picking them up and then trucking them here. Um, of course, from California, you wouldn't do that. You would have, mm. uh, you know, uh, a bona fide truck that's, you know, yeah. bringing it across in, sure, you sure. know, cooler conditions. But we don't do a lot of California fruit, so mm-hmm. um, that's just on a game. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's stuff that we can... Um, you know, easily like Roberto doesn't like doing a lot of white ones. That's mm-hmm. not like his forte. He's not really mm-hmm. that interested in doing them. So lots of times he'll bring in, you know, the white fruit or whatever, and um, you know, process it here. But like I said, we, we process very small amounts. So you know, these are red fermenters here. These are white fermenters over here. Okay. And then. Um, and then over there is just... So there's wine species. in them right now, or everything's um, in the barrel? Everything's in the barrel. Well, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. This one looks like it's... So I think they have everything to bed and in a barrel right now. Uh-huh. Uh, which is, you know... Which is the uh, ob- should, objective, yeah. anyway. This you know, is right. a Yonico 2015, so I don't think there's any in there, but... Um, Sounds, Unfortunately, sounds, sounds Roberto's not here today, and he's assistant plant manager, so I can't remember. Well, that sounds empty. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they use these as... Uh, you only, you, you're only using the equipment for a few weeks, really. Right. We really do everything very old school. We really mm-hmm. uh, do everything by hand. Everything is in a barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, and large commercial wineries use stainless steel tanks because... They do volume. We yeah. don't do volume. Mm-hmm. We do very small handmade batches of wine. So right. um, we use our equipment on this end just as holding, as temporary. You know, um, you know, a lot of really larger wineries will use tanks like this, and then um, you, you know, even ferment and add uh, you know wood chips and all kinds of stuff to get mm-hmm. it to where it needs to go. But right. we don't do any of that. Okay. You know, we just. Put it to bed, tend it a little bit, and mm-hmm. Roberto's in general his winemaking philosophy is you know if it's good 
from the get-go, you right. don't have to do much to it, right. or you shouldn't do much to it. Right. And so right. you can see, if you're a wine club member, his style, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a little, little lighter on the, the oaks. Um, you know, he uses uh, French wood and a combination of things. And then um, if he feels like he's gotten too much wood on something, you know, he'll blend or do things to, you know, try to dissipate that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or he'll just let it sit over time and he'll give it more time. Like the Merlot had a lot of woodiness to it this year, and so he gave it another six months. And it drives everybody crazy around here a little bit because they're always looking forward to the next new wine, and then he's like, no, 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 it's not ready, it's not ready. So he's kind of the stop get you know, guy. And then our case goods are over here. This is our cellar. And so... Um, yeah. Ah, okay, so you've yeah, got more, look at, really, more, more wine in here. Yeah, so this is where it's stored once it's, you know, bottled and all that kind of stuff. You know, this, oh, okay. This is in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's bottled and stored in here. Mm-hmm. So gotcha. it's you know you can see how small the winery is. It's it's fairly small, mm-hmm. and very very um, mm-hmm. you know focused on certain varietals, um, Italian varietals primarily. Our grower, like I said, is from the same area uh, freely that um, Rebecca's from, and so their farming sensibility for a change That'll make our 2,000 cases. Yeah. About, yeah. Yeah. And he has the math down pretty well. We haven't, sure. you know, run out of wine too badly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, you know, our, our, you know, wine club number is pretty predictable. And, um, you know, we've been doing it this long on this level. Um, it's funny because when you come from a fairly large corporate winery setting to a small setting, it's, you, you think that that would be an easy adjustment, but it's actually not. Yeah, you came from a much larger winery background, I think, right? Yeah, he did, certainly. Um, his He and his brother opened a, a winery in Southern California in 2003. And he ran that winery for a couple of years. But, um, so, uh, and, and they had all the, you know, like the big facility with not only a tasting room, but a full restaurant and full event center. Right. And uh, on that level. And wanted to try to do something that was more boutique mm-hmm. and small. So, if you want to do a boutique winery, like any of our listeners out there, maybe, yeah. um, you don't need a lot of equipment. And once, uh, well, it depends on how much physical work you want to do yourself and how much you're capable of doing. Right. You know what I mean? Um, this is not easy to do. And you know, Roberto, now that we've been doing this for, we've been in Texas for ten years. Um, you know, he's starting to feel his age. I'm a group of That being at 52, we're both looking at each other going, um, I think we need some more equipment, you know? So you think more equipment would make it easier? Well, certainly, yeah. yeah. In some ways, anyway. Yeah. I mean, in, in this business, the one good thing that you can do is you can lease and rent equipment. 
So, like, we don't have a forklift because a forklift we don't use very often, but when you need one, you absolutely need one. So that would be an example of something that we rent. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just, you know, have it in here when we need it, and, and then it's gone when we don't need it. Right. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's very, this is a very physical job. Mm -hmm. um, and not only for the winemaker, but everybody else who works here, too. Because yeah. wine is heavy, I guess, basically, and, and uh, there's yeah. a lot of volume. And, and so you see these pallet jacks, this right. is how they, you know, uh, kind of elevate these things and move them around, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, uh, right, right. you know, it's, uh, you can ask anybody who works in the tasting room, they've all made wine here. They're like, oh my God, now I understand why, <laughs> why it's such a labor of love, because it really is yeah. a lot of physical work. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's uh, tight in here. It's small. But, you know, when Roberto kind of decided on this concept that he wanted to do, um, I think it was, like, shortly after we had gone to Europe. And he said, you know, look at these European wine makers who can make wine out of these tiny, tiny caves. Mm -hmm. I think I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of, you know, the, right. it, the model was never to be a very large model. Um, you know, we're... It could be scaled up, obviously. Well, it could be scaled up easily, yeah. And, and we have plenty of room to expand here. Yeah. And I guess a lot of these other wineries around are bigger. Are bigger. Some of and them are much bigger. They have bigger. a different concept, maybe. Yeah, well, definitely. And also, we're sole proprietors here. We don't have any investors or anything mm -hmm. like that. So most, of, most people who get into the wine business understand that it costs a lot of money and so most of them have to either go for fairly substantial loans or um, uh, investor money. That's really how most miners get started. Yeah. And if they start out... But that puts small, you in the hole to start with, basically. It does. And you lose a lot of control that way. So that wasn't what my husband wanted to do. He wanted to have a lot of uh, not only artistic control but just control in general of how things developed and he knew he was going to probably have to yeah do this on his own so that's one of the reasons why we came to texas is because we could acquire land for less than in california at the time Absolutely. and you know um eventually build this into you know what we perceive is what you wanted yeah yeah awesome so is would you consider this a full-time job for you or do you have other there. No, we, we worked this full time um, and intended to do so when we came here. So um, he does all the, obviously, the winemaking, and I do like um, special events for the wine club. Right. Um, I'm more of the food end of things, so we don't step on each other's toes too right. much. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have my expertise and he has his. Um, and then um, I do most of the business management um, organizational stuff um and then we have two great gals in the office and they also work in the taste room cindy and nicole who uh nicole's the wine club coordinator and cindy's like the assistant manager for the tasting room mm -hmm. and then trace is like an assistant to roberto and he helps over here and then we have we just hired a high school kid to come in and help with the labor over here mm -hmm. um so we had somebody like that on staff for like the last year but he went to college last year or this this last fall so we finally found a replacement for him um, and then we usually uh, hire somebody to do the farming like I said Roberto did the farming in the beginning but you know farming here in the heat it's not for the faint of heart at all so um, 
you know, eventually he found a really good guy who uh, works at many of the other vineyards here and has a lot of experience. So, um, yeah, that's well, uh, kind of a burden or a weight off his shoulder. Right. But. So, where did the original concept come from? Was it something Roberto had in the back of his mind for a long time and just decided? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, being in the wine industry in, in California, he saw small, medium, and large wineries. And um, he had had it in his mind to start a smaller winery, but then, um, you know, the. And so, um, you know, like I said, he gained a lot of experience and, you know, um, you know, understood where they needed to be in that market. But when we came here, there were so few wineries that we were like, okay, well, we think maybe a small boutique concept would work here. Um, but, you know, you do it for different reasons. Like in a really large winery setting, you know, you're just hustling to service your debt and to make sure all your shit gets paid because it's very, very, very expensive. Here, you're kind of, I mean, you're kind of doing the same thing, but it's that's not what's driving you. What's driving you is excellence in the product and having lots of control and kind of artistic, um, you know, influence of, you know, how things come out and that kind of thing, so... Having experience both in California and in Texas, mm -hmm. how, how would you compare the two? Uh, is Texas in a very early stage compared to yeah. what you see in California? Yeah, yeah, no, it's in a, it's in a really, it's in the throes of like baby steps. Um, comparatively, in terms of the uh, number of wineries and in terms of volume, I guess. Well, volume and just learning um, expertise. Yeah. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's plenty of people who roam grapes here for many years, and there's plenty of people who own a winery here for many years. But um, I guess the to compare the two, it's a little bit like you know, like working on Broadway and then working at a small regional theater. On some level, they're not comparable at all, yeah. um, just because the. The industry is so large in California, and it's so powerful, and it has a lot of the systems down. You know, um, here they're just really kind of starting from the ground up and trying to get those systems in play. And um, so, you don't see that Texas is anywhere near saturation in terms of oh, no. wineries or. Well, I mean, wineries like I mean that's well that has to be distinguished because there are plenty of wineries here in Texas. But what we're getting a lot here on this 290 are tasting rooms. Those, those are different. Those are just retail shops. They, they are not. They're not actually making here. wine. Right. And they're not producing anything from here. And so there is a distinction. And sure. we have added a lot of tasting rooms without adding a lot of real facilities. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, comparatively, there are more right. tasting rooms than real facilities. Um, now, that's going to change, I think. I guess the consumer, the though, or just driving down the highway, wouldn't necessarily know, know, know the difference because they all sort of look the same. They also, and they kind of provide the same experience. And unless right. you're a wine club member and you've come to, you know, like special events and stuff like that, right. you're probably not going to know the difference. Um, so, yeah, we started out here of one of 12 wineries. Now there's, I don't know how many wineries and tasting rooms, but it's mm -hmm. gone far beyond that. Um, but there's still room for growth here, 
with people wanting to put in facilities and make wines from this area. And, you know, um, you know, there's still huge growth potential here. Um, but, like I said, they're going through the growing pains of what does that mean as a group. And the, you know, in California, like I said, these channels and, you know, lobbies and all this kind of stuff were very well established. And, you know, there are very, uh, you know, ways of doing things and not doing things. Here they're still trying to figure that out. And there's a, you know, there's probably like a little bit of resistance to not wanting to do it some other person's way, but wanting to do it their own way, you know. And Texas has that really big identity with the state and being from Texas. And so um, sometimes that's a hindrance, I think, here to them learning how, like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everybody already figured this out. You can learn from other people. Yeah, I mean, tradition comes from Europe, basically, yeah. through the Americas. Yeah, and then California tweaked it for themselves, Oregon right. tweaked it for themselves, Washington. You know, I mean, every state that's in play right now. Because the weather's have, a little bit different everywhere. Yeah, growing conditions know. are different, yeah. lobbies are different, legislation is different. You know, right. um, you know, some, you know, like we just went to a thing yesterday, and they were talking about the difference between states and the rules when it comes to shipping wine to the direct customer, which we're all doing. Um, and they vary so widely, it's not even funny, you know. But in general, California, because it's so powerful and the industry is so large, it sets the pace. And then usually people follow that, you know, that, you know, example of where they want to be in 30 years or whatever it is, you know. Um, and some states will never have the kind of saturation that California has. I mean, that's just a given, and it's never going to be that way. Um, here, well, it's... Well, climate, you know, I guess, in, in some Yeah, I mean, here, the great. biggest challenge is your climate problem. You know, we've had two years here in the last eight or nine years where they've had absolutely no crop in the state. So, and due to drought or what? Uh, no, to late freezes. And ah. the, yeah, Lake freezes where they grow most of the fruit, which is up in example. And some here in Hill Country, too. Mm-hmm. We actually, um, I think it was the second or third year here, we, we learned the day uh, that Texas Hills lost all of their fruit to hail. Like, it just happened in, like, five minutes. Mm-hmm. And the guy was here, and he was like, oh, we just lost everything. Yeah. So that's, you know, in California, that's rare. It, would be, oh. it, it hardly ever happens. Yeah. So, um here, it's conceivable that you have whole years where there's nothing really produced or not adequate amounts of it produced. And then there's a huge deficit in the state with how much is grown as opposed to, you know, how much is required to, you know, by the wineries. Yes. You know, there's a huge deficit. A huge deficit in what's being grown? Or there's not enough fruit produced in the state to, to meet the demands. Meet the, the demands of the wineries. Yeah. So wineries and wine winemakers here have to have flexibility and creativity in sourcing their fruit, and they will have some years where they can't source anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's well understood within the industry here, um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of loud voices right now who are saying, you know, everybody needs to do it our way or the highway. And if you know anything about the wine business, you can't really tell other people what to do. Uh, they're very independently minded people. Yes. And, um, you know, it's 
hey, you do whatever works for you. We will do whatever works for us. And, you know, that's fine. But in general, if you look at the legislature here, I think the powers that be understand that. They're like, okay, well, we're not going to box people into a corner that they have to no. produce all Texas wines all the time because that's just not going to happen here. So that's what I mean is as you go through state and state, everybody has their challenges. Everybody has their, you know, needs that they want filled. And not every winemaker wants to make locally produced fruit of, you know, like um, 10 or 15 years ago, they were they were doing a lot of Mustang grapes and here and mm-hmm. then... Um, you know, Blanc de Bois and um, Black Spanish. Mm-hmm. Most winemakers who are bona fide winemakers want to produce wines from Venetia. They don't want to be in just that category. And that's historically what's always grown here well. So, yeah. you know, um, it's still in the very experimental stages of what's going to do well here. Mm-hmm. And some people feel like they've found their rivals, you know, Tempranillos. We've done a lot of Tempranillos here. Um, some people are, are planning to not. Um, and these are all kind of rugged, heat-loving, very fast-maturing uh, types, which doesn't give you the complexity that a lot of wine drinkers are now used to because they're used to consuming, you know, wines from California or Europe or whatever. So, you know, we are always, I don't know, the thing that we went to yesterday was kind of um, eye-opening because it was the first time I really realized that the wine business is truly global, and that, like millennials who seem to have very little uh, concern about loyalty, or you know, like they just jump around all over the place, yes. you know, and it's probably from the internet. You know, they consumed something like forty-two percent of the wine last year, and they were trying to figure out like where it came from, and they were mostly cheap imports because the dollar is strong. Mm. So if wine is affordable to them and it's good they'll purchase it you know and, and it's mostly imported stuff so it I just it just reminded me that the wine industry now is not it's not regional and it's not national it's really global yeah. and, and that new generation is is not all that and the new right. generation is drinking wines from South America or where yeah wherever hey where was whatever good and cheap, whatever comes right? them yeah yeah because I mean I talk to my own kids and both my kids have good paying jobs but they're like yeah we're not, we're not paying you know, like they they grew up in the industry so they're like oh, I don't pay fifty bucks for a bottle of wine right, right. so they're very price sensitive very value oriented they're used to getting things free online mm-hmm. and then. The baby boomer, who is really more our customer, um, and Robert and I, are, I think we're in the last, you know, the last year, the baby boomer is like 64 or 63. Right. Um, we know that customer better, and we know what they appreciate and what they like. So it's not it's not the same, but, um, the, you know, the wine industry is getting bigger, and wine consumption in the United States is going up. And when we looked at Texas, we looked at Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, Austin, San Antonio, and realized that there was a lot of growth in this area, and that people would be embracing this experience and wanting to participate in being wine club members. And you know, we have. And Fredericksburg is kind of a and it's a, a destination social park. Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, we're a little far away from like our Dallas, Fort Worth people and our Houston people. They wish they could get here more often. You know. Um, 
but you know we try to reach out through social media and other things and, and you can ship things to them if they're yeah we can ship directly trip. so that's something that's really uh, was a game changer for Texas because we looked at Texas probably two years before coming here and you couldn't do that and so we dismissed you it you couldn't ship in the state or you couldn't ship out the state you just couldn't ship directly to your customer uh-huh. yeah they, they had a three tier system and you had to go through a distributor right but yeah. now you can now you ship can. direct to in-state as well as out-of-state? Well, in some states, not all states. Okay, not all states, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah you have to, Any for some states, you have to have licenses, and other states that are what they call reciprocal, right. it's a limited quantity of wine. Sure. Yeah. So that's getting more and more friendlier. They're getting, you know, more and more legislation passed. Uh, the Wine Institute has been very instrumental in getting... Um, legislation passed, uh, passed across the United States so there's more reciprocal relationships because they figure if regions can share what they do the best with each other sure. there'll be more wine knowledge and people will be less apt to say well if it didn't come from California I'm not going to consume it um, you know they couldn't possibly be doing anything decent over there and that's really trying to break down that barrier of you know sure. wines and excellence in wine and figuring out what does well here and stuff like that. So, right. And we're still, you know, still experimenting with this vineyard. I mean, we never, we haven't harvested anything from it. This will be the first year, so we'll see. It takes several years to get it going anyway, right? Well, when we planted that vineyard, we were in a very bad drought. Yeah. So that vineyard took a really long time to take off. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really struggling for probably the first three years. Yeah. And for the most part, we thought, I'm going to have to replant this. This is not working. And then, really in the last two years, we've done some pretty heavy-handed stuff. You know, he, he cut down to what they call two, two buds. Um, so he did severe pruning. He, he tried all kinds of things to stimulate growth. And part of one of our challenges here on this property is that we have a lot of clay. So well, it's hard for roots to get down deep and, and to establish themselves through clay. It just takes longer them to do that. Once they're established, they'll do fine. Um, so when we first planted the vineyard, it was all about doing very, very deep watering so the you know the roots go down and not out. So we knew that we had done that correctly. But with the severe drought here, we had inches and inches of soil where there's just like no water. Um, and then you also develop other issues here like hard pan with it being so hot that when you do irrigate, it seems like, you know, drip irrigation would get right into the roots. But if it's really hot and there's a lot of, um, you know, heat, it will just create this crust that doesn't allow anyone to get it. To yeah. it. So these are all things that we've learned as we've gone along. And, Absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of like Roberta said, he said, you know, California, you just put something on the ground to go. So, like, I don't, you know, it was a very steep learning curve for him on this vineyard. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why we have just that amount of acreage planted. Because he said, I will figure out what to do with this before we invest in more vineyards, which eventually he would like to do. But yeah. Well, thanks. It's been great. Yeah, and we'll see you again. Okay. So that wraps up this week's episode. Join us again next week when we explore another story of an organization and its performance. Until then, so long.